You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Hi, Courtney. So we are back with part two of asthma medications. I think for some reason, we originally thought that this was going to be one episode on asthma medications, and now it's turned into three a three-part episode. And um, I'm nervous because we haven't gotten to the biologics yet, so it might even turn into a four-part asthma treatment. Um, segment. Yeah, this seems to happen a lot to us. When we start taking a deeper dive, uh, it just like expands and expands and expands. And you know, honestly, that's what I love about this podcast because every time we do an episode, my brain just grows a little bit bigger. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's so much to know about all of these topics. And I guess that's why medical school and medical education in general is just so long. Yeah. And the fact that you guys all have this in your brain is insane to me. So Uh, Before we jump into this episode, maybe I'll show off my medical lingo skills uh, and kind of recap what we talked about in part one of our asthma medication series. So the question is, what is a SABA, a LABA, and an ICS? And we'll see if I get this right. So what is a SABA? A SABA is a short-acting beta-2 agonist, which is your quick-relief inhaler, like salbutamol. A LABA is a long-acting beta-2 agonist, which is used as a control in combination with an ICS. An ICS is an inhaled corticosteroid that is used with the LABA or it's actually used on its own as a controller medication. And these are all given as inhalers, right? Wow. Good job on all the lingo, Courtney. (laughs) Yes. And all of that is totally right. And yes, they're all given as inhalers. And some of them are actually also administered via nebulizer, but we're going to go into that later. So let's jump in. Is there anything else we should know about the inhalers? Yeah. So there are actually a few things. First one is that there's so many different brands and types of even the SABAs, the ICS alone, the LABA alone, the ICS-LABA combos. So it's really important to make sure that you understand which medication is which and that each one has different instructions and how they are used. Some of the controllers are once a day, some are twice a day, some you only use one puff, others you use two. So I think we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit more in the next episode when we talk about asthma and asthma action plans, but it's just important to remember. Yeah, that's good to note because I know that it could get really confusing if you have the more more than one inhaler. Um, and if you're tired, you might just take the wrong one. So I, I think there's probably methods that we're going to talk about in terms of having a good way of knowing when to use which one, especially for patients who have lots of inhalers. Yeah, it's super important. And, you know, we talked about how LABAs can be dangerous and how SABAs can be dangerous if they're overused. So it's just really important to understand how each inhaler works. Uh, Another point with the inhalers that I wanted to bring up is the quick relief inhalers um, might make some people feel anxious or feel like their heart is pounding. 
grounding. And we kind of touched on that before, but that is a common side effect. And it's usually very transient. So because they're short acting medications, for me, it's never been that bad. But for some patients, it can definitely make them feel really anxious. So sometimes what I do is I have them wait to take the second puff. I have them wait in between puffs about five to 10 minutes. And I find that that helps. And also for some patients, just one puff is enough. And so if they take one and they feel better, then I just tell them not, they don't have to take two puffs at a time. Um, And that'll help decrease that side effect of the anxiousness and the kind of the heart palpitations. And then some people have also found that they might have less of a reaction with a medication called levalbuterol, which is another type of Saba quick relief medication, which is found to be sometimes better tolerated as, as far as the side effect goes, but not all the time. And some of the research that's been done shows that it really isn't that different, but maybe patients are just perceiving a difference. So anyway, that is available. That's really interesting to note because as a kid, I used to take one puff and then we would wait like two minutes and then I would take another puff. And I've always continued that into adulthood. And I think it was probably as a child, I got that anxious feeling and that's always the way I did it. So sometimes I take one puff and I wait and then I actually don't need a second puff. Actually thinking about the difference between being a child and now is that when I was a kid, I used a spacer. Would you recommend this for everyone? Should I actually still be using a spacer or is it something that's just for kids? Yeah, so that's a great topic. And spacers are actually really, really great. So a spacer for people who don't know what that is, is an extension of the mouthpiece on the inhaler, which helps with better medication delivery. So basically, the spacer is like a little tube that holds the medicine in place so that you can breathe it in easier so that you don't have to time, you know, pushing down on the inhaler and breathing in. Research shows that it does allow the medication to be delivered more efficiently and effectively. And really, everyone, every child especially should be using a spacer, but also adults should be using a spacer with their medication. For this, another point actually needs to be made because this isn't really done for powdered base inhalers because they don't need spacers. So a lot of the ICS LABA combinations or ICS alone can come in either a regular inhaler or a meter dose inhaler or they can come in these powder-based inhalers. And so the powder-based inhalers, we don't use the spacer. The the last medication, the controller medication that we talked about, the teotropium bromide, is a super different type of inhaler, and it's, it's almost like a mini nebulizer, and it's like a mist form. It's totally used in a different way. So again, going over each inhaler with your doctor and making sure that you understand exactly how it's meant to be used and exactly how it should be used is super important important because there's so many differences between the inhalers. Okay, that makes sense. It makes sense that a spacer should be part of your action plan. And I guess I should also be getting one. Do you know if they make pursed sized spacers because I feel like they're just so bulky. Yes, <laughs> that is actually a big reason that a lot of people don't like spacers. So you're not the only one. And I think they do make spacers that collapse. But I do, I feel like those spacers are harder to keep clean because you should keep your spacer clean. So they're, you know, they're like this clear plastic tube that you need to wash intermittently. So I guess if you really wanted a collapsible one, um, 
you could probably get one and then just keep replacing it. And then if it's hard to carry around the spacer for the rescue inhaler, I would say that you should at least use the spacer for your controller medication. And one important thing to remember in all of this is that if you do use it for your controller medication, you might actually be able to reduce your controller dose because it'll be more effective. Oh, wow. That's actually really good to know is that the spacer will help you with your controller medication, especially since you might be losing out on the dose if you're not doing it properly. And I think that we should probably link to a video showing how to use these different types of inhalers just so that patients can see different techniques because I know you've been taught you might have been taught it maybe like 10 years ago and it's always good to brush up on these kinds of things yeah definitely and then another thing there's so many things to remember about inhalers the other thing that we need to know is that for the ICS inhalers we really want to make sure you rinse your mouth out after you're using any kind of steroid-based inhalers because if the steroid sits in your mouth for too long, it can cause a fungal infection in the mouth and that is called thrush. So you might've heard of thrush with little babies and it's similar to that. It'll cause this like kind of white um, buildup on your tongue and on the roof of your mouth sometimes. And it can, if it stays there too long, it'll cause irritation. It'll make your tongue feel sore. So it's easy to treat, but we would rather that you not get it, you know? So if, you know, anybody's having those kind of symptoms, it might be related to your inhaler. And also if you have an ICS inhaler, you want to That's actually why I always take my controller before I brush my teeth at night. And when I had to take it twice a day, I would also do it before I brush my teeth in the morning. Wow, that's great. That's literally exactly what I tell my patients to do. And it helps with making sure that you take your meds too. So it's kind of like a a way that when, you know, my patients are like, I can't remember to take my medications. I ask them, well, do you brush your teeth? Do you um, brush your teeth twice a day or once a day? whatever. And they're like, no, I brush my teeth twice a day. I'm like, well, then you can remember to take your controller medication because you can just put it right next to your toothbrush and do it before you brush your teeth because you have to rinse your mouth out anyway. So it's literally the advice that I give to my patients. Probably, I probably say that exact line two to three times a day, every day. So, um, yeah, so I really like that advice. I love that. (laughs) It's exactly my logic. And it's that's true. It's that's how I actually remember to do it because it sits literally beside my toothbrush. We should also include a picture of my bathroom in the show notes so you can see my controller and my toothbrush cuddling. Amazing. Perfect. Yeah, I love it. I would not want to take a picture of my bathroom because it's probably messy. But if you're if you want to take a picture of your bathroom, that's perfect. Let's do it. I might stage it so it's like an Instagram-worthy picture of my toothbrush and my controller. Anyhow, so I noticed that you mentioned nebulizer. Can we get into that a little bit? Because I think it is kind of in the same realm of inhalers, right? Yes. So nebulizers, right. So we haven't really touched on those yet, and they are basically a machine that delivers the medication in a mist form. Uh, so you turn, you know, you turn the machine on, you have to put a solution into the machine into like a little canister, and then it attaches to either a mask or a mouthpiece. And then um, usually the me- nebulizers are used in the emergency room for severe asthma attacks. But I we also give them at home for infants and young children who can't use 
inhalers correctly. And so one thing that I do want to point out, though, is that studies show that using an inhaler with a spacer can actually deliver the same amount of medication as a nebulizer. So a lot of people come to my office and say, you know, I really want the nebulizer because I think it works better. But I think it's usually just because their inhaler technique isn't right or they're not using a spacer. That's really interesting that a spacer and a nebulizer are almost the same because I had a nebulizer as a kid. So is there actually an advantage of a nebul of having a nebulizer? Well, when you give larger amount of medications, um, like in the ER, when somebody's really having a bad asthma attack, you might want to give a continuous treatment for someone. And what that means is like they're continually getting the medication for over like a half hour or an hour at a time. So in that case, you can't just keep, you know, pumping the inhaler over and over through the spacer. The nebulizer is more effective in that way. So for the ER, it is more effective to use the nebulizer. And I think, you know, there are some emergency rooms that are switching to the inhaler with the spacer, but I think there's a cost issue with that too. So it might be cheaper to use the nebulizers in the ER too, as opposed to having a new inhaler for every single patient. I didn't realize that inhalers were used in the ER, actually. I always just assumed it was nebulizers, but that might just be because I watched TV <laughs> and I don't hang out in ERs long enough. Yeah, I mean, it's not common because like I said, there might be a cost issue where I have seen some studies showing that, you know, an ER switched over to using an inhaler with a spacer. But again, you don't see it very often. And I think it's, it's likely related to a cost issue. Just to clarify, because it sounds like nebulizers are actually kind of useless, but maybe I'm just not understanding it right, since I feel like the spacer and the nebulizer can be used almost the same. But is there a time where a nebulizer is really important to have, or is there a reason that you really want to prescribe one rather than just giving someone a spacer? Yeah, so I mean, I definitely personally give nebulizers for my infants and young children uh, up until they get older, just because I think it's a lot for parents and it is easier to use a nebulizer versus the spacer with the inhaler. And so when you've got a little infant and you're having to give them a controller medication through it, for example, twice a day, I think it makes patients or parents anxious when they don't know if they've used the inhaler with the spacer correctly, whereas the nebulizer, you can kind of see, okay, the medication's all done. I've, you know, the the babies had the mask on, so they feel like they've given them appropriate medication and they don't feel as anxious. I think for infants and, you know, up until they're like kind of young toddlers, I will give the nebulizer. But once they've turned into little toddlers and they're like kind of mobile and they're more kind of interactive, then I usually switch to a spacer with an inhaler because I really want the parents to understand how to use that. And I really want the child to be become used to using the inhaler with the spacer for a number of reasons. But the most important one is that it's portable. You can carry around and a spacer and an inhaler anywhere you go. And so if your kid has, a, has an asthma attack in the middle of a mall, you can have your spacer and your inhaler. But if you only are used to the nebulizer, then it feels scary to all of a sudden be in a situation where you don't have your nebulizer and your child's having an attack. Yeah, it sounds like it can be a crutch, actually, the nebulizer to a certain degree. Are nebulizers then used for all types of inhaled medication? So the only type 
of medication that we have for use of the nebulizer are inhaled corticosteroids by themselves or the SABAs by themselves, and then another type of muscarinic antagonist like the teotropium bromide. There aren't any combo meds for the nebulizers, so there's no ICS-LABA combinations. There's no LABA medication for the nebulizer. But the other muscarinic antagonist that we have is called ipratropium bromide, so very similar to teotropium bromide, but it's essentially shorter acting, and it's the same essential mechanism of action as the teotropium bromide, so it works on that muscarinic receptor, and it works to help with bronchodilation and maybe with the mucus secretions also. But it's only used for acute attacks, and it's not a controller medication like the teotropium bromide. I just have a question. So I think... And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the use of home nebulizers really depends on where you come from as well, because I'm thinking about this and I talked to Emma, who is from the UK and who we talked to in episode four about her son James's asthma journey. And she was mentioning how it was hard for her to get him a nebulizer. And could a patient ask you to get a nebulizer for their child? Yeah, definitely. I've had, like I said, you know, parents sometimes feel like, oh, this is the medication that's given in the emergency room, so it must be more effective. And so they do come in asking for it. And I have that same discussion with them. I tell them that, you know, the spacer with the inhaler is just as effective. But if they feel more comfortable with the nebulizer, I don't want them to feel stressed out. And and I and again, I like them to develop the technique, you know, of using the inhaler with the spacer. And just reminding them that, you know, studies do show that it is equally as effective if used correctly. I feel like my mind has been slightly blown because I definitely believe like a nebulizer was a a step up from an inhaler. And it's really interesting to hear that nebulizers and inhalers with spacers are on equal ground. Equal ground, unless again, you need to give like a continuous treatment. So yeah. Can we move on? Because I do have a question now and I don't know if we're going to get totally sidetracked or if we're going to continue on the world of controller, but I'm curious about something that my grandma used to take because she was actually on a pill called Singular. And I know that was for her asthma. And is that also a type of controller? Yep, that's actually another type of controller medication. And Singular is the brand name of the medication. So the generic name is Montelukast. This is a good time to bring this up. But with all of these medications, there are so many different names and brand names and generics and depending on the country you live in, et cetera, et cetera. So we've kind of talked about this, I know, but the Asthma and Allergy Network has a great chart that lives a lot of these medications and breaks them up into their categories with the different inhaler pictures. And so there might be some meds missing depending on which country you live in, but it put into different categories. So it's a nice thing to look at actually, even while we're doing this podcast or while you're listening to this podcast, it might be something nice to look at. So we're definitely going to put that up in the in the notes too. For this discussion, we're really trying to use the generic names so that, you know, no matter what country you're in, you can kind of get an idea of what medication we're talking about. That's true. I mean, the one that we talked about that I'm on, the 
the AAN doesn't have that on their list, but if you see the two different medications in it, you can see that there are some similar ones on that list. So good to mention. Yeah, exactly. So it can get really confusing for people that, like we mentioned, when people are on multiple inhalers. So I always like to make it a point to clarify which one they should be using one at every visit, because unfortunately, I've had patients take the wrong inhalers at the wrong time. So a tip, another tip for patients that I really like, no matter what medications you're on, is that now that we have our cell phones, and we're essentially addicted to them, because I know I, I think I am, um, you, I always tell patients to keep a separate album in their um, pictures that's labeled medications. And I have patients take a picture of their medications. And so um, I tell them to keep it in that folder. And so when you go to see your doctor and you don't remember the names of your medications, you'll have them all on your phone. With the pills, I just want to emphasize that that doesn't mean taking pictures of the pills themselves because every white pill is a white pill, (laughs) but it means actually taking a picture of the actual pill bottle with the name on the on the bottle. You told me about this last summer and I've been doing it and it was so helpful at the dentist because I had to like put all my medication and I can't remember all the names of them. So it was like so useful. Uh, And I definitely recommend everyone does it. And I would also add that I take a picture of the expiration date as well, just so that when I am looking at the list, uh, when I'm at the doctor's, I will be reminded that I need to ask them for a new prescription if it is expiring soon. That's a great idea. That's awesome. I'm so glad that, I don't know, you just got so much out of our little meeting the first time that it's awesome. It makes me feel really good. You know, in general, I never blame patients when they don't remember the names of their medications, especially if you're on a bunch of medications. It's really difficult. And so I just let them know, you know, whatever you can do to keep things as simple as possible, because life is, you know, there's just so many things to think about. And this is just one way to keep things a little bit more simple. And it's really hard to remember medications that you don't even know how to say out loud, like Montelukast, (laughs) which has another weird name. And I knew it as singular, but it's Montelukast. So that's interesting. Can we get back to Montelukast? Yeah, of course. As I said, it's a controller medication and it's what we call a leukotriene receptor antagonist. So now that's a little bit easier to understand. So there's a receptor that's called the leukotriene receptor and this medication blocks it. So the leukotrienes are chemicals that are involved in the immune response. And when they bind to that receptor, they cause inflammation, swelling, and tightening of the airways. All things that we don't want, obviously, in our airways. This medication blocks that from happening. The medications can't bind to the receptor and can't cause all of that inflammation. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I love how now these things make sense. So we know what like an antagonist means. Perfect. When would a patient take a leukotriene receptor and receptor antagonist? Yep, that's a great question. So it's for patients who have moderate to severe asthma, and in particular, it's for patients who have allergic asthma. So we know that these that Montelukast particularly works for patients that have a known allergy. So they've shown the allergy on allergy testing, or also for patients with exercise-induced asthma. But for non-allergic asthmatic patients, it's not really technically approved for use in those patients. I guess my grandma was allergic to her old age home. No, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Anyhow, um, is this one of those 
controllers that takes a while for a patient to see that it's working or is it something that happens right away? And I'm just curious because it is in pill form. Yeah, so it actually won't feel like it's working right away, but like any other medication, it does, it is working, right? But you won't notice that, you won't physically notice the effects right away. So you'll gradually feel better. So one thing to remember with this medication also is, and I don't want to scare people with this, but that it can cause mood changes like agitation and bad dreams. So that's something to look out for. It's not a common side effect. It's still a great medication, but for someone who has a strong history of mood disorder or is already suffering a lot with kind of depression, I never choose to put, put them on Montelukast just because I don't want to make those things worse. And the other thing to remember is that we always take this medication at night. We don't know exactly why, but it might have something to do with the circadian rhythm of asthma. It's just more effective when it's taken at night. So would you have to take a history of these feelings before putting a patient on a leukotriene modifier? Yes, I think most allergists, most doctors usually do keep this in the back of their mind. And I always ask all of my um, patients about the other conditions that they have, including mental health issues is something that I personally always ask about. Yeah, I think that side effects definitely have to be a part of the conversation when you're being prescribed a new medication. I know that personally, this is what takes up a lot of time for me at appointments because I really want to know what to expect and what to look out for, you know, to know that these are the symptoms that could be a side effect. Right. Yeah. And that's, and it's super important to ask questions, to really understand your medications, because a lot of the times patients won't take their medications because they're worried. And, you know, and you've maybe seen a commercial on TV. And I, I really hate those medication commercials because they're scary. You know, it's like, oh, this medication is going to help you with this, but then it may cause, and they list off like a million side effects that sound really terrifying. So I don't really know if those commercials work for those companies because to me, it would just scare me off from taking those medications. Yeah. And the, the benefits are much higher than the side effects in the long run. Of course. I mean, we always, as doctors, we always look at the risk benefit, you know? And so again, in patients for Montelukast, the risk of someone having a mood disorder and then being put on this versus using a different type of controller is something that we, we take into account. And I think that that's always something you need to ask as a patient is what are the side effects? That's definitely something you need to keep in mind. Yeah. So that was a lot of information. And I really do feel like I have a much better understanding of asthma management and of the medications that help control asthma. Um, as you can tell, my speech is getting a little crazy because my head is totally full at this point. And we have a whole other beast to talk about, which are the biologics. And I really can't wait to learn more about them. But I feel like we might need some fresh ears to tackle them. Does that sound like a good idea. Yes, I am um, super excited that this feels like it was a good episode and you feel like you learned a lot, but I'm also excited that we don't have to cram it all into one episode for treatment because there is just so much that we need to talk about with biologics. And then we also haven't even touched on the asthma action plan. So I think we can definitely tackle that in our next episode. Like we said, asthma is a huge topic. So it's kind of never ending. <laughs> I love it. I can't wait. Okay. Well, until next time, I will talk to you later, Courtney. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.